Hello and welcome to the Thomas Life and Coffee Podcast. My name is Thomas Shellwise, your host. And today we have Sean Stephen Mellis, who is going to share his amazing story. And Sean is a saved and sober, leading a life of recovery. So Sean, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. So uh, amazing story. I know it's coming. We're going to get into that in a minute, but we want to just ask you, how's your week been? My week's been great. It's been blessed. Been really busy at both of my jobs. Both of them have been amazing. I'm the food service manager at our local mission here in Redding, California. And I'm also a chef at one of our local hotels. So it's been pretty, pretty crazy busy. And that looks completely different than it did in the last couple of years, right? Yes, quite a bit different. I went through an 18-month recovery program. And previous to that, I was leading a life of uh, severe alcoholism. Okay. It's uh, really great to have you on here. And we're definitely excited to hear your story. So how about we just jump right into it? You just start where you want to and, and let's I'm go. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Awesome. So my story kind of starts when I was about seven years old when my parents got divorced. Never really got into the drinking or drugs or anything like that. But the divorce hit me really hard. My sister and I, we thought it was our fault. And so kind of did some emotional damage to us. Never really processed through that when I was a kid. When I was a teenager, I escaped into, into reading of anything to escape into is probably one of the healthiest things I ever escaped into. I really liked adventure, escaped into fantasy and stuff like that. Let me get away from the, you know, the, the darker thoughts I was having and the emotional fears and stuff I had. So I really escaped into books. Then in high school, I never partied, never had any interest in it. I always had questions about it, but I just asked all of my friends that, that did drink and did do drugs. I was like, Hey, what's it like? You know, what's it about? And they're like, well, it's, it's fun. You got, you got to try it someday. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm not really interested in it. I just want you to, I want you to tell me what it's about, you know, describe it to me. Cause I'm, you know, I'm very inquisitive. Right. And they, they couldn't, they couldn't describe it to me in detail enough. So finally, one day when I moved away to Phoenix, Arizona to go to college, we got invited to a party and some guys handed me a beer. And I remember them, uh, they're like, here, have a couple of beers. And I was like, all right, cool. And I'll, you know, I'll try it. I remember thinking like, man, this is disgusting. Like, this is absolutely horrible. I'm like, do you guys have anything else to drink besides this? And they, they jokingly handed me this uh, mason jar full of clear liquid. And it ended up being Everclear. And it was super, super potent. Took a drink of that and about died drinking that. And then uh, they ended up going to the store and buying me a bottle of Southern Comfort that night. And realized that that was actually really tasty. That was the first, that was my first time ever having any access to alcohol, ever having had anything to drink. And I really liked it. And that was my first, you know real experience with anything. And from there, it kind of started my journey of drinking. I enjoyed it, started to like it, moved back from Arizona after college, continued to drink from there. Never really became a problem until about probably six years later, went through a bad breakup, moved to Colorado and proceeded to drink real heavy after that and continued to drink heavy for the next 26 years. Fast forward quite a bit, met my amazing, unfortunately now ex-wife. Her and I met at Robin. She liked the fact that I drank and she was 19 and she liked the fact that I drank. We got together, started having drinks together. And she's also the one who introduced me to the Lord with Nate Edwardson, who's the pastor of the stirring. He ran the a thing called celebration and it was a live concert. And they both knew that I really liked music. So they asked me to come to celebration one night. I'd been drinking earlier in the day and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go to this concert. And she's like, are you, are you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Let's, let's go to this concert. And I remember walking in there's this lady sitting there and she was, she was crying. And I was like, man, she's, she's crying, but she's sitting there praying. And I didn't understand why she was praying. Like when she was crying and she was upset, and this man next to her was sitting there dancing and 
having a good old time and dancing away and all these other people are sitting there worshiping the Lord and enjoying the concert. And the guy that's dancing reaches over and starts praying over the lady that's, that's crying and he's still dancing. I realized that I'm missing something this whole time. Angie and Nate are looking at me and they both kind of like smile. And I'm, I'm like looking at these people like they're, they have something that I'm missing. And I talk to Angie and Nate and I'm like, Oh, Hey, you guys, I'm missing something, aren't I? And they're like, Oh yeah, you are. I enjoy the concert for the night and Angie and Nate asked me to go home and pray about it. And so I go home and Angie asked me to what I thought about the concert and what I thought about celebration. And I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely missing something because I've been trying to fill my life with alcohol and chasing girls and, and trying to fill a void that I have in my heart. And I, I think I realized what I'm missing because all these people have Jesus in their life. I've been trying to supplement my life with something that's not filling that void. Angie, my ex-wife, she's like, oh, well, would you like to say the Lord's prayer with me? And I remember saying, absolutely, I'd love to say the Lord's Prayer with you. And I said the Lord's Prayer and accepted Jesus that night. And I remember that void filling up and that hole in my heart and the hole that I felt in my body literally filled up that night. But unfortunately, I kept I kept supplementing that that feeling that I now no longer felt the need to fill that void with alcohol. I kept supplementing that with I kept drink. I continued to drink for the next few years with my ex-wife. And we ended up having three beautiful daughters together. We led a great life. I was working 12 to 16 hours a day at an amazing job I had as the chef de cuisine at a local restaurant here in Redding, California. I started drinking real heavy. I was really stressed out. I was running our household, taking care of three daughters. Angie and I started having some problems. We were both drinking pretty heavy. She has a really stressful job here in the county and it started to affect our relationship pretty bad. She decided after about a year of me drinking pretty heavy and her drinking pretty heavy that just we weren't working out, unfortunately. And instead of getting help and going into meetings or getting some counseling that she decided to file for a divorce, which ended up affecting me real negatively. That, that Emotionally, that damaged me pretty hard. And I ended up not dealing with those emotions. And so I just turned to the bottle even heavier, which was really, really negative for my, my life. I went in a pretty, pretty bad downward spiral. I started losing jobs. I started losing housing. I started losing my ability to function as a human. I really stepped away from the Lord. My focus was the bottle. I stopped focusing on my children. I was still a loving, caring person. I still very share my alcohol with anybody and everybody I possibly could because I wanted companionship, but my focus was that bottle. And for about the next eight years, I really lost everything. I mean, I'd lost, I already lost my marriage, but then I could proceeded to lose continuously, went from job to job, ended up becoming semi-homeless. I was living with my parents, taking care of a DUI that I'd gotten, trying to get that taken care of. And then I completed all my classes, got all that, all my fines taken care of. I decided to check myself into my first rehab. I knew I needed help and I knew I was out of control. I checked myself into an outpatient program here in Anderson. Well, that wasn't working very good because there's a liquor store across the street. And I would every, every night after I get out of class, I'd just walk across the street. I'd be shaking because they'd ask you to show up sober. And I'd, I would try my hardest. I'd show up without having anything to drink. And I'd start shaking really bad about halfway through class because I was severely addicted to alcohol. And I was, I was at the point, I wasn't just hey, I need a beer. I need a, I need a cocktail. I was, the doctors told me I was physically addicted. Like it wasn't a mental thing. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm craving something. I was literally, I, they told me you have to have alcohol in your system or there's a possibility you'll die. So I would go across the street and I'd buy alcohol and go about my day. And, you know, then I could function. I had all the tools. I had all the knowledge. I had all the recovery principles behind me through the first program I was in. Uh, that wasn't working. And then I had an instance where, I ended up getting fired from my job at Safeway here in Anderson. They had actually talked to me a couple of times about my drinking. I came in one day after a day off 
and I had spent the entire day drinking real heavy. And I came in, and I smelled like alcohol pretty bad. And they're like, oh, hey, brother, we, we, you know, we, we appreciate you here. We love you. And we know that you're in your recovery program, but like you, we can smell it on you today. And I was like, hey, I'm really sorry. You know, yesterday was my day off. I know I tied one on, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm functioning. They're like, well, that's the problem. We know you are. And you're one of our best employees and you're, you're here intoxicated and you're doing a better job than most of our employees. And I, you know, I apologize for them. And they're like, oh, is there anything we can do to help facilitate you getting better? I'm like, well, I'm already in a recovery program. They're like, is there, a, is there a different program that we could help get you into like an inpatient one? Because it's obvious you need a different level of care. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to do the best I can. God had bigger and better plans for me. I ended up losing my job at Safeway. And for about the next month, I literally blacked out because I, I got depressed and I, I didn't know what to do. So I literally just drank super heavy for the next month from April to May of 2018, I literally don't remember. I remember waking up to go buy alcohol. I remember waking up to drink and to eat a little something in between. And then on May 20th of 2018, I'd had two pints of vodka and six beers. I'd blacked out twice. And I woke up for the third time that day. I was sleeping in my van because I wasn't allowed at my parents' house anymore. And I woke up and I went and bought my third pint of vodka for the day. I was walking down the street in Anderson and I was gonna go buy some dinner. I had put the bottle of vodka in my front pocket. I was walking, unfortunately, right in front of the police station here in Anderson, and the bottle fell out of my pocket right in front of the police station as a police car was pulling out of the driveway. And it was an arresting officer of mine. I had been arrested 11 times in nine months. I had literally, for the same crime, the officer looks at me, goes, put it down. And I'm like, okay, officer. I'm not going to use his name, but the officer, I'm like, yes, sir. So I grabbed the bottle and I put it down my throat. He, he meant to literally put down the bottle because I was holding it. So I put it down my throat and I chugged the pint of vodka. And he's like, Sean, put it down. I'm like, I am. And I was kind of being sarcastic and being a smart aleck, but he didn't think it was very funny. Right. His partner is looking at me with awe in his eyes because hard alcohol is not very easy to chug. Yeah, I can't imagine. So, so, so I put the bottle down. He pulls around, he pulls through the middle of the road, pulls over onto the sidewalk, and he looks at me and he goes, I want you, I've never made you blow, and I've been your arresting officer quite a few times. I want you to blow on the breathalyzer because I just watched you chug a pint of vodka. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. He goes, and he asked me and his partner, he goes, have you been drinking today? I'm like, of course, you know, it's it's me. And he goes, yeah. He's like, well, he's like, he looked at me, he's like, brother, I love you. I don't want to see you like this. You're going to end up dying, Sean. Like, I've seen you like this too many times. I have a heart for you. I don't want to see you like this. You need help. Please stop doing this. And I told him, I don't care. I've lost everything. I don't have anything that I really care about. The bottle is the only thing I care about. As long as I have a bottle, I'm happy. You know, I don't have my family. You know, I don't have my kids in my life right now. You know what's going on in my life. You know, I'm not working. I don't have anything. And I didn't, I literally didn't care unless I had a bottle. So that night he makes me blow on the breathalyzer and his partner looks at me and his jaw drops and he goes, huh, you're dead. And I'm all, no, sir. I'm standing here talking. I'm like, I'm going to go get tacos. I'm like, Do you guys want tacos? Like I'll buy. And they, they kind of laugh and he goes, no, like seriously, scientifically you're dead. I'm like, why? What's my BAC? Because I had blown on the breathalyzer and he goes, it's 0.383 in climbing. So anything above 0.25, you're comatose. 0.3, you're scientifically dead. And above that, you're, you're, you're scientifically dead. So I, I just kind of laugh. I'm like, well, I'm standing here talking to you. I'm not slurring my words. I'm coherent. I'm not on the sidewalk, passed out drunk. And he goes, you don't understand. You should be all of those and above. You should be in a pool on the ground, not moving in a medical state of induced coma. 
And I'm like, well, I'm not. Can I go get tacos? And the guy goes, you're, you're an amazing story. Like, I don't understand how you're, how you're even standing here talking to us. I'm like, well, I am. Can I just go? I'm hungry. Like I haven't eaten all day. My blood sugar's crashing. I need to go get some food in my system. And the officer's like, oh, well, I'm probably going to take you to the hospital because your BAC is at a dangerous, dangerous level and it's climbing. So they made me blow again and it got up to like 0.42 the second time they made me blow. And for some weird reason, they end up taking me to jail instead of taking me to the hospital. I get to the jail, the nurse that checks me in and the booking officers are like, he doesn't need to be here. He needs to be in the hospital. Why did you guys bring him here? Because he's coherent. He's not, he's not belligerently drunk. We're going to put him on a 72 hour medical death watch because his BAC is so high. About five hours in, they kept, the nurse kept checking on me every 15 minutes because I was so intoxicated. They kept checking my vitals. They kept, they kept waking me up. They kept getting me up and checking me like, hey, Mellis, get up. Mellis, get up. Mellis, get up. They made me blow. My BAC got up to 0.55 while I was in jail. And about five and a half hours in, they're like, knock, knock. They knocked on the door like, Mellis, get up. And I, I tried to stand up and I literally couldn't, I couldn't stand up anymore because I was super, super intoxicated. So I stand up, I finally make it to the doorway and I'm like super intoxicated, sliding down the door frame. And they're like, we're, we're super slow tonight. So guess what? Good luck for you. We're going to release you. And I'm like, you can't release me. I'm on a 72 hour medical death watch. And the nurse looks at him and goes, what are you doing? You can't do that. He's here for three days to, to sober up and he's on a medical death watch. He's going to die. If you guys release him, he's going to die. We're going to release him because we're slow. So they released me. It was the fastest booking and releasing I'd ever been through. Normally it's about an hour long process. They literally brought me into the booking cell. They're like, same tattoos, same address, same phone number. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They handed me my stuff in the hallway and they let me walk out the back door. It was, which is not their normal protocol. I'm somehow stumbled down the back stairs out of the jail. And I look and I'm like, it's five o'clock in the morning. This is going to be the longest walk of my life home because I was super intoxicated. I was really tired. So I make it from the jail in Reading, meander through town. I make it out to Airport Road, which is about eight miles away, down almost to Anderson. I make it about 300 yards to Kent's Meat Market and Grocery. I'm walking along the road and I'm like, I got my, I've got, an, got my EBT card on me. I can get something to eat. My blood sugar is crashing. I'm getting really shaky. I'm going through withdrawals, even though I'm super intoxicated. And I'm like, Lord, please just let me make it home. I've got a bottle at home with a little bit of vodka in it. That'll get me through till the afternoon when I can go to the store and buy some more vodka. I've got like a 50-50 mix of vodka and some juice at home. That'll be perfect. That'll get me through, even though I'm, I know I'm really, really drunk right now, but like I'm going through withdrawals because I'm so used to drinking all day long that my body's needing the alcohol to get in my system. And I just need a little something to eat because I need food in my system. If I can make it to Kent's Market, I got my EBT card. I can buy some food. And unbeknownst to me, I had a $5 bill in my wallet that I had hidden. And I could have bought some vodka there because I had you know, cash on me because you can't use your EBT card to buy alcohol. I'm praying to the Lord to make me let me make it home so I can get my alcohol, which is the wrong reason to be praying. So I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, please just let me make it home. Please just let me make it home. And my right leg starts shaking and I can't walk anymore farther forward i'm like what's going on with my body like why am i having like a mild seizure and then like my legs start shaking violently and i'm like god i can make it home and i start saying i and i kind of tap myself on the chest i'm like i can make it home and god's like no i'm like yes i can make it home and i'm like god please just let me make it home i'm almost there it's only like three more miles i i can do this i can do this and right then i hear this small still voice in my head say lay down and rest my son and i kind of stopped and i looked I couldn't walk any further forward and I stopped. I'm like, what? I hear again. I said, lay down and rest my son. I'm like, it's the side of the road. I'm not going to lay down and rest right here. There's, I'm in the next to the middle of a field. 
And right then something on something physically grabbed my left shoulder, picks me up and slams me into the road. And I'm laying face down, facing oncoming traffic. And I, I kind of lift my head up and I'm looking and there's a car about a mile ahead of me coming, coming towards me. And I'd smashed my face into the road and I, I'm bleeding. My nose is bleeding. My mouth's bleeding. I bit through my tongue and I bit through my cheek. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, I'm going to get hit by a car. I'm laying right on the white line. Half my body's in the road. Half my body's on the median. There's no physical presence around me. There's nobody around. There's no cars. There's no, no human presence. And something gently rolls me down the side of the road, off of the road, down the embankment, into a ditch. And I'm like, what was that? Like, there's, there's nothing around me. And like, I can't move. I'm having a seizure. I was having a massive seizure. I literally couldn't move any part of my body. And I'm laying there on the ground in this ditch. And I'm like, I'm like just laying there trembling. I can't move. I can't move any of my body. My legs aren't working. My arms aren't working. My head's not working. And I'm laying there and I just, I'm kind of scared. And I hear this small, still voice again. I said, lay down and rest my son. And I fall asleep. About three or four hours later, I wake up and I'm like, I'm in this weird pain. Like I'm getting hit by something and I wake up and I'm like, ow, what is that? And there's this guy riding by on a riding lawnmower doing a fire break for PG&E on the side of Airport Road. The rocks from the riding lawnmower are hitting me on the side of the head. And he looks over and he sees me and like, I've got blood all over my face. I've got from my head being smashed into the ground. He freaks out. He comes running down the hillside or the little embankment and sees me and he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, he, and he thinks I got hit by a car because there's blood everywhere and I'm in this ditch and he's freaking out. I somehow am able to spit out seizure. And so he calls 911 and I still reek like vodka, even though it's been at least 10 hours since I had been to jail. He's like, okay, cool. He's like, so did you get hit by a car? He's like, he's asking me all these questions. All, all I can spit out is I'm having a seizure. About an hour later, an ambulance finally shows up. I guess all of the ambulances in the writing area were on a call. And that's what the ambulance driver said when he got there. It ends up being an old friend of mine. His name was Patrick. And we used to work together at Red Robin. I ended up getting really, really sick to my stomach. And I start throwing up this horrible color, this black color. We, they get me into the hospital. They end up taking me to Mercy Hospital. I end up going through five and a half days of detox there. Because I get there and they obviously can smell the alcohol on me. And they find out that I went through a seizure. I go through five and a half days of detoxing there, which was a medical induced one. And that's definitely what I needed. I tried doing the the detoxing on my own and I couldn't do it. And then God came first. He's the one who definitely wanted me to be where I needed to be. When he told me to lay down and rest, that's where he wanted me to go was to go through a medical detox because I definitely needed the the medical assistance because it's what's called the DT trims. That's the level of drinking I was at. There's, there's detoxing and then there's the DTs and there's the DT trims. The DT trims can actually kill you. This is severe, severe form of not detoxing, but of they're like these trimmers that you get that are like so severe from being going through withdrawals that it can like actually one, the one drug of alcoholism that can actually kill you. So they medically induced the, uh, the recovery process there with some different medications. Uh, there was Librium, Ativan and uh, Valium to help calm the nerves and stuff. And then after five and a half days, Mercy told me that they were going to go ahead and release me to go home. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, sweet. I'm like, and my first thought was like, sweet, I can go buy a bottle. And I'm like, well, we're not going to release you to the home that you think we're going to release you to. We're actually going to release you to go home, but we're going to release you to the care of the Good News Rescue Mission. And I was like, what? Why? Like, I have a place to go. Like, I've got a home. I can go to my parents' house. And they're like, no, we have a better plan for you. Okay, whatever. And I'm like, I can still go get alcohol. Like, there's a store right there there's Safeway if I need alcohol I'll just go by I'll just go by there there's something there that we want you to check out I was like oh okay whatever and they said well we're releasing you because your your BAC is low enough 
I was still intoxicated five and a half days later after going showing up at the hospital, but it was my blood alcohol level was still it was low enough. So I, apparently I get to the mission, I get there and they ask why I'm there. And I, I don't remember any of this. I don't recollect um, signing up for the recovery program there, the men's, the men's new life recovery program, which ends up being the biggest blessing of my life besides having the Lord in my life. It ends up, how do I put this? Josh Jersick, the, the program assistant manager told me, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. He tells me that after I signed up for a program about a month into me being there, he goes, you were the most interesting, unusual, strange intake we had ever done out of every person that has ever come through these doors. And I laughed. I'm like, why? Why is that? He's like, oh, I, I'm not going to tell you, but I just want to let you know that y- you were bizarre. And I laughed. I'm like, oh, can I see my, can I see my intake? And can I see my, my application? He's all, nope, it's in, it's illegible. I'm like, is that bad? He goes, yes, it was that bad. And I'm like, okay, I'm so, I'm, do you want me to refill it out? He goes, no, it was, it was actually kind of fun. And I'm like, all right, that's pretty cool. So to this day, I've the most out of every drug addict and alcoholic that's ever been through their doors, I was the most unusual and interesting, apparently. But on the on a better note, I go through pre-program and about two months in to pre-program, the the manager jo- or Andrew Jessen asked me, he's like, oh, Are you still interested in doing program? And I'm like, Yeah, of course. Like nobody's contacted me and nobody's really like stayed on stayed on top of me of like what's going on with like me being in pre-program. He goes, Oh, are you serious? I'm like, Yeah, like nobody's ever said anything about like what's going on or like the facilitating me getting into program. He goes, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We've kind of dropped the ball. We absolutely want you in program. Come up, come up and talk to everybody right now. I end up getting into the program and start the classes. I move into the upstairs and start hanging out with the guys, start going through the classes, start going through the recovery process. And it ends up literally transforming my life. I had known the Lord. I'd accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I'd never had a personal relationship with God or Jesus. I had never established that contact and that love and that intimate feeling before I had just accepted Jesus and like, all right, cool, rock and roll. I can move forward with life and keep doing what I was doing before. I had felt, like I'd said before, I I had filled that void when I accepted the Lord, but I was amending the Lord's love and mercy and grace by still drinking. I had never changed my heart. I had never changed my mindset. I had never, I had never grown into the man that God wanted me to be. I was still doing what I was doing before I was saved. I kept drinking. I kept living the life. I kept doing what I was doing before I accepted the Lord. And that's not what God wanted for me. And the program literally opened my eyes to that. And God was there first and foremost, showing me who he wanted me to be, where he wanted me to be, what he wanted me to do to get there. And he put the right people in my life. He put the men in the program where like, we weren't really allowed to be around too many women. Some of the case managers for the women's program, we were allowed to associate with just because they were in and out, you know, talking to the, to the male, male program directors and stuff like that. And the male counselors, but we weren't allowed to associate with the women very much because it's a faith-based program and they're trying to keep us pure and keep our, keep our minds focused on recovery. But even the women counselors were very encouraging to our recovery, but the men that were the teachers, the counselors, the staff, they were all very loving and very kind and very encouraging. They brought structure to our lives. They brought love and encouragement. They brought God's love to us. They brought so many aspects of something I was missing that it changed my heart attitude. Like I was always loving, caring, and kind. I never had the scope of what I have now. I didn't have the compassion that I have now. I didn't have the, like I have God's mercy and grace which is so phenomenal. And it it changed my heart set. It changed my mindset. It changed who I am. And it changed what I'm, the way I act now. Like before I would cuss every once in a while or like 
you know, you'd use a swear word here and there, or use it as an adjective or a noun. And now like, I, I personally just choose not to swear. I don't, I don't need it. I don't, I don't think it has any value. I don't see the use of it. And my, my daughters notice it. They're like, dad, be like, you don't swear. I'm like, I don't need to, I, I don't find any use for it. It's just a hard attitude changes totally helped me with the program. I was there, I was their lead cook for eight months. I'm actually a sort of a classically trained chef. I've got 30 years in the cooking field. I'm now the admissions food service manager. So it's kind of come full circle. I graduated the recovery program in January 3rd of 2020. And I got hired in March 1st of this year, 2021. So I'm, I'm working there and I'm also the chef at Holiday Inn here in Reading. So I'm, I'm a busy guy. But yeah, no, the recovery program changed my life and it, it brought so many blessings back in my life. It reestablished my contact with my children. I went through the whole process of getting the supervised visitations. And then from there, it grew to unsupervised visitations to me getting my own house when I had, when I phased up in fifth phase in program to having them living with me four days a week to sharing 50, 50 custody with my ex-wife to my ex-wife and I from having a restraining order against me two, three years ago for a year to us co-parenting and having a loving, caring, kind relationship with each other. She comes to my house, walks in, knocks, walks right in, doesn't, you know, wait for the door to be opened. I go to her house now without her being there, pick up my kids knock, walk in. She's like, what are you doing knocking? Just come into the house. Like, you don't have to knock, you know, we're here, just come in. So, I mean, the relationship is totally healed, totally changed. It's loving, it's kind. I love the fact that her and her boyfriend have a super loving relationship. Can't wait for them to get married. I mean, my heart attitude has changed. The forgiveness has happened because of the program. I never processed through my grief from our divorce and that program and the recovery process helped me with that because I, I didn't have that before. I had the pain from my divorce. I had the hurt from the divorce. I never turned to God for that. I turned to the bottle. My first and foremost, I thank the Lord. Secondly, I thank the recovery program. Now it's just like God has done so many amazing things in my life by, re by restoring my relationship with everybody that I had damaged from my drinking. I just want to encourage anybody and everybody out there that it's doable. God comes first. If you put the Lord first and you actually establish a loving, kind relationship with the Lord, you let his mercy and his grace work in your life. It's going to happen. He's going to come alongside you. He's going to love you. He's going to, he's going to work with you and he's going to, he's going to show you what he's made of. I mean, I don't know if that's the proper way to put that, but he is so amazing that he wants the best for you. He has shown me that so many times over in recovery and in, in my sobriety that he wanted the best for me. And I wasn't seeing that I, I was choosing the bottle and he's like, that's not what I want for you, son. I want, I want the best for you. I want you to have your kids in your life. I want you to have loving relationships in your life. I want you to have friendships. I want, I now have Thomas in my life. I have you in my life. And I didn't have that before. I would have never have met you if I didn't go through that program. I wouldn't have this experience right now. I wouldn't have this blessing in my life, being able to share this story if I didn't have recovery and sobriety in my life. And, Absolutely. And, and thank Absolutely. you, by the way. Yo, you're welcome. And, you're welcome. And it's just, it's a crazy journey that I'm on. And it's every day I'm excited to wake up. I'm excited to go to, through the day. And any encouragement I can share with people that it's doable, that it's wonderful. It's it's work. I'm not going to lie. It's it's a lot of work, but you have to, you have to put it in. Nobody's going to do it for you, but it is so worth it. The blessings that pour out of it are immense. It's, it's, it's innumerable. I have my children back. I have two wonderful jobs. I have a, I have a house of my own. I have a great family set. I have my parents back in my life. I have my, you know, I have all my family around me. 
I have loving, supporting friends and family. I have people that encourage me daily. I have a staff that I work with. I have two staffs that I work with, I should say, that love and support the fact that I lead a life of sobriety and recovery. I mean, they can be sitting there having a cocktail and they're like, oh, is this bothering you? I'm like, no, of course not. Like you guys do you. You guys don't have a problem drinking. You guys aren't sitting here with a pint of vodka in your pocket, hiding that, having a drink. Like I'd be having a drink with you with a pint of vodka in my pocket so I can go to the bathroom and drink that on top of the drink. I'm not doing that anymore. You guys aren't doing that. You guys, you guys are in control. I, you know, didn't have that control. Right. And so I'm able to process through. And anytime I've had any, any desire to drink, I process through the tools that the program gave me. I can't lie. There's been two times there's been beer 30. I'm going to be real with everybody. There's been a couple of stressful days. And I've realized that I don't need the alcohol. I need to slow down. I need to have something refreshing. So I'll grab a soda or I don't drink sugar. So I drink like a diet soda or a glass of iced tea. I'll need to sit down because I've been on my feet for 16 hours. So I'll sit down, play a video game, slow down my brain, slow down my thought processes, relax a little bit. First and foremost, I pray. And then I thank the Lord for the day. Thank you for the opportunities to do what I do. And then ask him to take away the, the, the stress that I have in my life. Ask him to take away... The anxieties, ask them to take away the pressures that I have and then enjoy the refreshing, you know, iced tea or soda that I have and then find something that satisfies the the craving that I'm having to take away the anxiety or the pressure, but like the desire to like supplement something like I'm like, oh, that that tasted good. And like, I'll have a bowl of ice cream instead. And that satisfies me. So there's, there's certain things you can supplement instead of alcohol or drugs, whatever it is your, you know, your choice is, there's certain things you can do that makes things better that is just as satisfying if not more satisfying than the drugs or alcohol i don't know if that makes any sense but it, it no, helps me it, it helps does. me it does um, i have a few questions if you're yeah. open yeah let's go back to when you were seven and your parents are going through the divorce that was the time yeah. around the time that was happening so pre pre that pre-divorce did any of your parents struggle with alcohol no, my dad drank beer every once in a while. Like it wasn't like very, very inconsistent. Both of my mom's parents were um, raging alcoholics. I, I never knew them. They both died when they were like 30 and 33 from alcoholism. So genetically it runs in my family. So according to the doctors, I was predisposed to alcoholism. She drank occasionally. I mean, like super rarely. So like it was never like an issue of like being in the house. It wasn't readily accessible. I, I didn't even start drinking until after I was out of high school. So like, it was never an issue at home. It was never prominent in the house. It was never, there was never bottle after bottle after bottle around or anything. It was like maybe a six pack of beer here and there. And that was not even when I was little. I don't even, I don't honestly don't even remember it in my house. Right. Looking back on that now, was there anything that your mom or dad did in excess besides alcohol, something else maybe that was- They smoked, they smoked super heavy. Super heavy. And, and that and that actually turned me off. Like I, it was really gross to me because we, my sister and I always smelled like cigarettes and we got made fun of a lot at school because we always smelled really bad. So I, I never started smoking. That's one of the bad habits I never picked up was smoking. Yeah. Which is ironic if you think about it. And maybe that's not the word, but like your, your mom's parents were raging alcoholics. So in a sense, she's making a choice not to be an alcoholic, right. but, but her excess was cigarettes and because of her excess in cigarettes you chose not cigarettes but then ultimately the alcohol right so you see right. the interlacing of that through that which you know when i when i talk to people who have these you know do these things in excess there's usually something that was happening before right because we have what we call this ceiling as parents now 
you're going through, you're, you're fighting the battles, you're, you're doing the work. And the idea is that you get to a certain point at the end of your life and that's your ceiling. That's what you've accomplished in this life. And the idea is this is where our legacy starts, right? So this is where our children should start. They should start from your ceiling and be moving up. So they don't need to go through the same battles. But sometimes as, as parents, we, well, we're, we're going to take this decision away, but because we still need to have something in our life, we are excess this. So you're not really fighting the battle. You're really covering you're you do, you're doing something else. Right. right and then the right. next, the next level, that battle is still actually there to fight is to, to go through. And I shouldn't say to fight, but to go through, to do that. So then the next generation doesn't go through that. And so it's, it's interesting to see how that interlaced through your journey. So, okay. So now the divorce has happened. What was the things you were blaming yourself for? Cause I know you said you, you and your sister were blaming you yourself for the divorce. What did that look like? Her and I, we, we didn't realize there was any trouble in paradise with my parents. Like they never fought in front of us. They never argued in front of us. We had no idea that anything was wrong. We, we had went on vacation. We almost went every summer to um, Colorado to go spend time with my mom's sisters in Colorado. That's where they live. And my dad came to pick us up and we're like, where's mom? He's like, oh, she's, she's at home. But when we get back, we need to talk. We're like, oh, okay. Like, why didn't mom come with you? Oh, she, she has some stuff. I'm like, that's really weird. Cause it's my mom's sister that we're staying with. Like, why didn't mom come to visit her sister? That's right. really, really weird. And then when we get home, my dad's like, oh, so I need to sit you guys down. And this is like 22 two day drive back from Colorado. The night we get home after like 14 hours of driving, he's like, so your mom and I are together. We're divorced. We got a divorce. She no longer lives here. And we're like, what? Like, what did we do? What did we do? Like, oh, it had nothing to do with you guys and your mom and I just weren't getting along. We're like, no, what did we do? Because like every time we would ask you for something, you tell us to go talk to mom. Every time we'd ask mom, because dad said to come talk to you, go talk to your dad. So we thought it was something her and I had done that made them split up. Because every time we, we'd always go ask them to, for something, to do something, they'd say, go talk to your parent, go talk to your mom, go talk to your dad. So we always thought, we always thought it was something we had done. And then you said after that, you found a way to kind of escape reality, if you will, into these books. It was any specific series, any specific, I know you said it's kind of fantasy. Was it, I mean, what was that? I got, I really got into D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, any, any kind of adventure book like that. And even previous to that, I was at the library every day at school at Happy Valley Elementary. I was in the library. I was probably the librarian's favorite student. I would probably check out two or three books a week. I read as much as physically possible just to escape whatever I possibly could. So I didn't have to think. I would be in the book and be on that adventure and doing whatever that person was doing in that book versus what I was doing in real life. I just tried to be immersed in some other world than the one I was actually living. Okay. In that book, were you one of the, the hero, one of the guys with the hero? Kind of accumulation, whatever character I could associate the best with. I mean, there's, there were some heroes that were jerks or like, I didn't like really like, so like I could be like the one that had like the most compassionate heart or like the one that would be the one that was actually, in my opinion, the hero, the one that was helping actually take care of the group or the one actually had the loving heart towards people. The one that was actually showing, you know, compassion towards people. That's the person I would associate the best with. The big brawny hero wasn't always necessarily the, the, the best character. Right. So you had a specific type that you were associating with. Oh yeah. So then outside of the fantasy world, part of that, you, you, so that was not reality, but that was the reality that you wanted to be in because it helped you stay out of the reality that you live. You woke up to every day. 
So in that reality that you woke up to every day, what type of student were you? A's and B's, occasional C, really good in science, English, history, enjoyed most other subjects. I played played track and field, wasn't interested in baseball or football. I did wrestling for a year. And then I started working when I was 15. I started, started kind of early, kind of got out of sports after that. Wasn't interested in any of the contact sports. It was always a really little guy, never really got really big or anything. So I didn't really play any of the bigger sports. Right. When you were in school, you didn't, you did have any discipline issues or were there certain? I got suspended once for putting a thumbtack on a teacher's chair. Okay. But outside of that, no fights, no. No, no. Yeah. Okay, good, good. So when you were with the, or you were living with your dad? Yes. Or were you, so you're living with your dad mainly and were both of you living there or was it just yeah, like. My you? sister and I both lived there and then I moved in with my mom my senior year of high school. I'm just kind of go help love her and love and support her. Okay. Um, so was the reading still happening? Like when you were oh, not, yeah. when you were not uh, at school, you were not at work, you were reading even through the age of 18. So you went to college then. How did you decide that like Arizona was where you were going? It was actually my senior year of school. We had a a tech school come through that was for, it was kind of a weird tech school. It had two components. They had a a motorcycle mechanic school part of it. And then it was an advertising design part of it. And I was really into art and computer graphics. They kind of sold me on the art and computer graphics, advertising design aspect of the school. And then I went for that. I got there, I was only 17. So it was kind of hard for me to find a place. So I had to move in with a couple of roommates, went there for the first semester. And then my mom ended up going through a really bad breakup with her boyfriend of like 20 years. So I ended up moving home to help take care of her. And she went through some pretty bad emotional stuff. So I kind of came home and helped take care of her. And So you were there for how long? For how long? About three, a semester. Semester. Okay. And during that time, that's when you, that's were when introduced, I started drinking. you introduced yeah. alcohol. So were you at yeah. 17 at that time? Yeah. 17 and you were introduced to alcohol you were there for three months and then you came back now where were you living at this time after you came back from Arizona? oh in anderson with my mom in anderson so you're from this area that yeah, that area yeah, okay so you you were school there then you went to phoenix or went to arizona to go to school and then you've come back and now you're living yeah. with your mom so how did you continue to drink i mean did your mom know you were drinking oh yeah and no, she was I, I okay with that. With a bottle of she didn't approve of it, but she knew she wasn't going to stop me. She knew I'd just go out and go with be with my friends. Like I would go hang out with my friends and we'd go find somebody to buy us a bottle and we'd go party for the night. And Did your dad know that this was happening? No, my, not that I didn't really have anything to do with my dad anymore, but like my dad wasn't ever really around very much. He was a traveling salesman. And so he was only home like on weekends. And then we just kind of like, really didn't contact each other very much. Like I would call him and say, hi, I love you. And he would never call back. So we just kind of, kind of got distant for a while until I ended up getting married. And then we started being in contact with each other, which was eight years later. Yeah. So you're, so you're drinking, your mom knows you're drinking. She doesn't approve of it, but she's not going to stop it. Right. How long were you with your mother? Cause you said you were living with her. How long were you with your mother before you were out on your own? 17, 18, 19, three years. So 17, 18, 19, about, about two and a half years. And then I moved in with a girlfriend and then we, we drank all the time together. We, you know, hung out and okay. drank beer. And, and you were, you were working obviously during this time. Oh yeah. Because, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, was, I was a manager at a local restaurant. Okay. So where did the love of cooking, where, where was the inspiration for that? Because it sounds like based on your background, like you didn't talk anything about cooking. 
Oh yeah. Of, and now all of a sudden we're cooking. It started with my mom, just being in the kitchen with her. Just, I love food. I love to eat. And so I'd always be in the kitchen with my mom. She's like, get over here and help me. I'm like, oh, mom, I don't want to, you know? She's like, then I was like, oh, I get to lick the batter on the cookies. Okay. I'll help. I'll, right. I'll stir that bowl. Sure. Heck yeah. You know, right. you get to lick the cookie spoon or taste the batter of the banana nut bread or something, you know? And then just learning to do simple baking stuff and then learning how to make the baked chicken and stir the potatoes and, you know, kind of stuff like that, you know, it's growing up as a kid. And then I ended up getting my first job at a taco shop here in Anderson. And then from there, I worked at another Mexican restaurant, a couple other Mexican restaurants, actually. And then I became an assistant kitchen manager at Red Robin for seven years. And then from there, I moved culinary wise. I went to Shasta College for their culinary arts program. From there, I became a manager at almost every restaurant I've worked at. My biggest my biggest kind of achievement is being the chef de cuisine at Moonstone Bistro here in town. Phenomenal okay. restaurant, phenomenal chef there. Learned probably most of my skills and techniques and methods and all that kind of stuff. Most of my knowledge from Chef Che there. Phenomenal place to learn. Was there for six and a half years. So it sounded like you had a really good, you were progressing in yeah. the culinary industry, but somehow you were managing to also drink during this time. So yeah. functioning. What was, the, what was the defining moment or were there multiple defining moments where you're like, well, so this, I was starting, this when, might... when we, the defining moment was actually at Moonstone Bistro. Blatantly honest, I had become really unhappy there. I was, I was running the restaurant for them. I didn't actually see them for about three and a half months, the owners. And I was having to make executive decisions that I was like literally paying bills. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to pay. I, they're like the, the wine purveyor would show up and be like, oh, I need a $5,000 check for this wine order that you guys have to have for this wine pairing dinner that you guys are having on Friday night and the owners aren't there and they wouldn't answer their phone and they wouldn't answer their home phone. They wouldn't, either one of them wouldn't answer their cell phones. And so I'd have to write the check and then they'd get there and they'd yell at me for writing the check. But then we'd have this special wine pairing dinner for a hundred people. They had to have the wine on hand for. I'm like, you guys can't yell at me for a, a situation that you're not going to be here to sign the checks for when you say you're going to be here at a certain time. So I'd, I'd be drinking the night before. Well, I, I'd start drinking during the day. Like I'd show up with a 40 of Mickey's and drink that at my seven o'clock in the morning. I'd start drinking during the day on my shift. And then that wasn't enough. So I'd go into the office and grab the bottle of brandy and start drinking the brandy. Mm. And then I'd be half tuned through my shift. And then I was like, oh, well, I feel fantastic. So I would drink all day, every day, five days a week on my shift. And then I started day drinking. Before it was just, I would drink after work. Right. Then I started drinking on my shift. And I was like, oh, you know what? This sucks. I don't like it here anymore. I love my job. I love being creative. I love cooking. I love doing what I do. And then I stopped drinking during the day for about a week. And I started shaking super bad. And I was like, oh, snap. I'm addicted. Uh-oh. This went from being, hey, I have a couple of beers after work and maybe a shot or a mixed drink to, uh-oh, I have a problem. Right. So how did you justify the drinking during the day? I wanted to get fired. You wanted I was to, trying get to get fired. fired. You're trying I to. Get try, I was purposely trying to get fired. I was like, oh, I'm going to be intoxicated one of these days. They're going to walk in and be like, oh, dude, I smell alcohol in your breath. They're like, oh, yes, you do. Where do you got it? And I, I literally didn't care. I was purposely trying to get fired. And right. they're like, oh, they're like, are you all right? I'm like, I'm, I'm hammered. And they're like, oh, rock and roll, keep cooking. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, dang it, come on. So like, how long? You. You're awesome. How long were you there at that restaurant? Almost seven years. Almost seven years. And then you finally left. And then, and then I ended up quitting. Yeah, the the owner's wife cussed me out one day and started screaming and yelling at me and called me a few expletives and lady parts. And I decided to say, thank you very much for your time. You have a fun time running your restaurant and I'm out later. Right. Put my keys on the counter and walked out the door. Okay. I'm not going to be treated okay. like that. You know, it's unacceptable. Right. So it went from there 
And then did it start spiraling after that? Yeah. Yeah. From there, like I started having a hard time holding jobs. I started, I started having, I started having to drink all day that snowballed into me shaking really, really bad. I couldn't not drink. I would try my hardest. I'd be halfway through a shift and be all of a sudden be like, I'd be trying to make a dish, me trying to saute something on, on the stove and be like, oh man, I can't even grab this, this, this handle of this pan. Like I'm shaking so bad. Like I'm like, all right, I'll be right back. I'm going to run in my car real quick. I'm going to take a break and run out, grab the bottle, take a nip, take a hit off the bottle and be like, ah, sign of relief. Like, okay, cool. I can go finish my shift. Right. And then that became more and more and more and more to the point where like I was drinking two or three pints of vodka a day and I'd take me at least a half a pint to get through a shift every day. So you married this whole time. We got divorced right before I left Moonstone Bistro. Okay. How did, do you think the drinking really numbed the initial feelings behind that? No, I think it compounded it. I think it made it worse. I was super depressed. I was super hurt. I was, I was devastated. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm for, for a guy, I was, I was hurt super bad. I didn't want to deal with the emotional pain because it hurt so bad. And so I just drank more and more and more. Right. So when the divorce happened and I know we're not going to talk much about her, but I just wanted to ask, did she, I mean, was this a catalyst for her to go through a program or to get some help or was it like, nope. yeah. So no, no she's, okay. she's still, she doesn't drink heavy or very often, but she still, she still partakes every once in a okay. while. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just interesting that, well, you did anyway. And that's, that's the important thing. So, okay. So you go through the divorce, but you continue to do this and the things are spiraling out of control. When did you end up having to go back and move in with your, your mom? Yeah. My, your mom dad? And dad, my mom and stepdad. Yeah. It was, I was on my own for about after our divorce, I lived on my own for six or seven years. And then I had moved to McLeod, California, where I was born to help take care of my cousin. She has, she has cancer and she was needing help. And I just lost my job. I was helping take care of her, running her back and forth to San Francisco to take her to her cancer appointments down at UCSF. Did that for about six or eight months. And then I came back to finish taking care of my DUI classes because I had like three months left of the three-year statute of limitations to take care of that. So I came back and took care of that. And that's when I moved back in with my parents, got a job here back at a restaurant here in Anderson, started working there. But I, again, I've been drinking the entire time and been drinking super heavy, was blacking out all the time. Like literally don't remember days. I mean, I just wake up, start drinking, drink through the entire day. And then I started working for the restaurant and kept, did the same thing. Would have to drink, would drink all day and then go to work. I worked in the afternoons and evenings and then drink during my shift, just sneak out to my van or have the bottle in my pocket. And then- yeah, I just, that's when I started moving, living with my parents. I took care of my DUI classes and you have to show up sober to those. Right. They make you, they make you blow on a breathalyzer. If they think you're intoxicated, they'll kick you out of the classes. So I'd, I'd be sitting there shaking really bad. They're like, you're all right. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm sober. <laughs> so, so the, so the DUI, cause you've mentioned that a few times now. And I wanted to ask about that. How long ago did that happen in this uh, process where you are in the story? 2014 is February 27th of 2014. I had just gotten off of a back-to-back double shift at Mary's Pizza Shack. I literally got off work. And again, I was drinking during drinking all day during the day, during my shift. I had worked uh, three to one o'clock in the morning the night before. Had to be back at seven the next morning. So I'd had like four hours of sleep. I drank the entire day, night before during my shift. Had four hours of sleep, got up at seven, got back to work. Drank not a lot during my shift, but you know, had probably half a pint of vodka during my shift. To get me through my shift and then got home had a 24 ounce mickey's got off work had the beer got hungry 
hadn't been grocery shopping. So I was like, I'm just going to run to Del Taco just up the street from my house. Got into Del Taco and I was at the drive through and I'm talking to the lady and she like looks at me kind of weird. And I'm like, oh, can I help you? And she's like, no, I'm good. I get back onto Cypress Avenue and this highway patrol comes flying down off of I-5. I'm like, man, this car is hauling, hauling rear end. I'm almost to my house. I turn onto my street and this car comes sliding around the corner. I'm like, what is this person doing? They're going to hit me. And no lights, no sirens. And I'm literally 100 yards from my house. I'm getting ready to pull into my driveway and whoop, 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 lights me up. And I'm on like this random side street in Reading. Like it's a very indescript road. It's very kind of hidden. It's not well known. And I'm like, why is this cop pulling me over? Like I'm not even visible from like any street in Reading. It's right off Cypress. And I rolled down my window. I'm like, can I help you, officer? Like, is everything okay? Like you just came screaming around the corner. She goes, were you, you kind of going fast back there? I'm like, ma'am, I was going 35. It's the speed limit. Like, what are you talking about going too fast? You were the ones flying down the road. I saw you come screaming down the road. Like I was doing the speed limit. And she goes, oh, well, I just, I just thought you were going kind of fast. I'm like, ma'am, I saw you coming down the off-ramp from I-5. You were flying down the road. I don't know who you're coming after, but I'm not that person. And she goes, have you been drinking tonight? I'm like, I had a beer like an hour ago. Like, how would you, how would you even know that? Like, what would even re- register that? So the people at Del Taco smelled alcohol in my breath right. when I went through the drive-thru. So they called 911. Right. They got an officer down there and that's how I ended up getting my DUI. Right. So did you, did you see this moment, maybe a, one of the small wake-up calls along the way to the, the final one, obviously, that needed to take place? Small. I still continue to drink heavy. But you look back on it now. Oh, yeah. Think, now, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, think, and think about like, oh, man, that could have been so much worse. Right. Well, it could have been so much worse. But if I had just made the, you know, not that you can live in the past, but it was right. like there were some knockings along the way. Of oh, like, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. So yeah, no, there, there's many, 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 many other times I drove really intoxicated. I mean, way more than a 24 ounce of Mickey's and, you know, the half pint of vodka in the, during the day. Like there's many times I've driven intoxicated. I mean, unfortunately. Right. So what is the message? I mean, you went through the program and you graduated and, and congratulations on that, by the way, that's, that's awesome. 18 months. It's not easy. No. It's not easy. And now not only did you graduate, but now you're working two jobs. You have your children back in your life. You have a great relationship with your ex-wife now, at least for the co-parenting part of it, which is amazing. You don't hear this happen all the time. So you are obviously had to take some big steps of being brave, being courageous, and really stepping up to the plate to, to change your life, which is not something that everybody does. So for, first of all, I applaud you for that. What would you want to share with somebody who's on the journey that you were on? What would you want to share with them right now? I want to share that first and foremost, put the Lord in your life, except if you haven't accepted Jesus, accept Jesus. I mean, I know that's put in a lot of people's faces, but it's it's the truth. God will work miracles in your life. If you let him, if you accept him into your life, I had accepted him, but I kept living the life. I, I didn't get that personal relationship. And that's what it's about is your personal relationship. It's up to you. It's, it's your relationship. It has nothing to do with what other people think. What, I mean, having fellowship is super important, but I talk to God. I, I say my prayers. I, I give him my worries. I give him my thoughts. I give him my love. I give him my, my stresses. I give him my, 
my concerns. I give him my, my love. I give him my, my joy. I give him, I give him my everything. Right. When you turn to him for every aspect of your life, my struggles, like when I struggle with wanting a beer or a drink, I give him that. I'm like, Oh, Hey dude, like it's been a, it's been a day. I'm, I'm thinking about it. What do I do? And that's when he helps me process through. No, you want a soda. That's when you want this. And so when you get a bowl of ice cream, that's when you sit down and play a video game. That's when you pray to me first. Recovery programs work, um, especially if you find the right one. Like the first one I went to, it didn't work for me. It gave me the tools that I needed, but it didn't have God in it. It didn't have the Lord walking you through it. It didn't have the right people in it. It didn't have the loving, the loving people that are putting their hearts and their time with God directing them to do that for you. So, Go ahead. I was going to say, so what it, basically what I'm hearing, and I'm just from my observation of what you just shared there is that it's a relationship. Yes. That God's going to show up. The heart of the father is going to show up, but you have to show up too. And you Absolutely. have to do your Absolutely. part because he could have shown you, you know, taking you through being on side of the road, taking you to the hospital. But unless you had signed on that dotted line, unless you had shown up to the classes, you wouldn't be any different than where you were right. before because you right. showed up. I, I literally could have walked out that door and been like, oh, I can go back to drinking today. They, they released me into the care of the mission. I could have still walked across the street to Safeway and bought a bottle. Right. But I signed that dotted line. I, ch I chose to put in the work, the dedication. And that's that's what I can say out there is put in that work, put in the dedication. If you want the if you want to change, if you want better for you, do it. It's, it's worth it. Life is so much better leading a life of recovery and sobriety. There is a there is a major difference between sobriety and recovery. Sobriety means you're not drinking or using. Right. Recovery means your heart attitude has changed, your mindset has changed, your personal relationship with Jesus is there, and you're sober. You you're not drinking or using your drug of choice. Right. Recovery is an encapsulation of all of that above and beyond. You your whole being is different. I'm reading a book called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge right now, and it's it's helping me become closer. It's helping me grow as a man. It's 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 a book for men. It's, it's, it's just helping me grow as a person right now, which is a blessing. So it's, it's something I'm personal journey I'm on for, for you guys out there. There's a lot of other good material out there, but I mean, that's the, what, that's the book I'm in right now. Yeah. We'll definitely put that link out there for the other people who want to read that book. We'll just, we'll put a link on there for them to go check it out. And so thank you for sharing that with us, Sean. It was an amazing story. I know that you know, every story I share is, is so unique and so different. And, and especially the one you're on is now, it's not going to be the same. If somebody else was struggling with the same thing you are, it's not going to be right. the same story. It's going to be very unique, but yours is going to resonate with people. Somebody out there is going to, is going to hear this and, and need to hear it. Awesome. And so the last question I have for you is like, like for me, I know that you're destined for greatness. Thank you, brother. You're destined for greatness. And the people who who walk the walk that you walk and make the choice to like, I, I'm changing my life. I'm changing my life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're destined for something greater? I do. And it's not having a big head or being conceited or being narcissistic. I believe that God has me on a path to do wonderful things for the people that I'm around. He wants, he wants the best version of me be a blessing for him. He doesn't want, he doesn't want mediocre. He doesn't want cold people. He wants, loving, caring, kind, compassionate people. And he wants the best version of everybody for the, for him. I mean, he comes first. I mean, he wants, he wants us to be for him. And that's, I wasn't that person. I'm becoming that person every day. For me, that's a blessing. For me to see me growing every day and becoming the man God wants me to be excites me every day. That makes my heart happy. 
watching me be the best dad I can possibly be to my children, being the best man I can be for every person I come in contact with makes my heart happy. It just, it seeing the change in me, I mean, around me, I mean, I see that people get, people talk to me all the time about it, which is, you know, is amazing, is an amazing change from three years ago. Right. I've run into people here in town that have complimented me like, oh, we thought you were dead. It's so good to see you that you're alive and that you're healthy. It's a blessing to see you. Right. Well, that's good. That's really great to see that you, I definitely can see that you have purpose now. I can see that you have, you're on a mission to change the world around you. And that is, you know, one of the parts of the definition of an overcomer. And we can definitely see that in your life. So Sean, thank you for joining us today. If this resonated with you at all, we have a link down below that you can spend some time with us and with me specifically, and we can talk about your overcomer journey that you're currently in, or maybe you know somebody who has an overcoming journey and you think they would be a great fit for this podcast. There will also be a link in the description for you to be able to reach out to us. We'd love to hear your story and see if you would be a great fit. And again, we will put the link down, Sean, for that book, Wild at Heart. And, and just one more time, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Thomas.